Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today I'll be speaking with Anna Andriva about her recent book, Assembling Shinto, Buddhist Approaches to Kami Worship in Medieval Japan, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2017. In this work, Andriva focuses on a complex network of religious sites, figures, and texts to help us better understand the way in which Japanese deities were worshipped in medieval Japan. In so doing, she illuminates the medieval stages of a process that led to what was later called Shinto, and adds to the growing body of scholarship that challenges the relatively recent idea that Shinto is simply the native religion of Japan, unchanged since ancient times. To tackle such a grand undertaking, Andriva focuses on a mountain in central Japan called Mount Miwa, as well as on Issei, the location of the Issei shrines and the abode of the most important imperial deity. Beginning with the significance of Mount Miwa as a religious site for pre-9th century Japanese rulers, Andriva charts the decline of this mountain's importance during the 8th to 12th centuries and the subsequent revival of the site during the 13th century by non-elite practitioners of esoteric Buddhism stationed at small Miwa temples and by the Saidaiji lineage under the direction of the Buddhist monk Aeson and his disciples. Continuing chronologically, she then shows how the 13th century revival led some time later to the emergence of the so-called Miwaryu Shinto, an eclectic tradition which spread to different regions of Japan and whose influence continued until the early 13th century. Central to Andriva's project is the world of Japanese esoteric Buddhist thought and ritual, for it was in this setting that the Japanese deities could be transformed from beings characterized by ignorance and desire into embodiments of Buddhist awakening. Throughout the book, Andriva addresses many religious elements, Japanese and not, that were incorporated into esoteric Buddhist traditions active at Mount Miwa and Issei. These include the incorporation of deities from ancient Japanese mythology into medieval legends and esoteric ritual, serpentine and dragon imagery, initiation rites modeled on the enthronement of a king, pilgrimage, and the use of royal symbolism. In addition, she provides a number of detailed descriptions of rituals and translations of liturgical and exegetical works. The book's topic is very complex. Andriva has opted out of the usual approach, which would be to trace the development of a single figure, text, idea, or institution. This makes the project far more difficult for the researcher, but has the invaluable advantage that it allows the reader to perceive and appreciate the fascinating networks that show how medieval Japanese religion actually existed and developed on the ground. Beyond its importance for understanding Japanese Buddhist intellectual history, esoteric Buddhist thought and ritual, and the development of Shinto, the book also serves as an example of how to study the intricate social, economic, and geographical networks that lie behind the development of religious ideas, practices, and institutions. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. Today I'm with Anna Andreeva, who is a research fellow at the University of Heidelberg, where she conducts research on Japanese religion, with a particular focus on medieval Japanese esoteric Buddhism and on Buddhist medical theories. Welcome, Anna, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Luke. I'm really very pleased to, to be invited, and I'm looking forward to our interview. 
I want to begin, as I always do, by asking how you came to the study of religion, of Buddhism, and of Japan. Perhaps I could start from the Japan part. Um, I was actually a teenager when I came across uh, Russian translations of Japanese poetry. And um, that piqued my interest so much that I began to study Japanese when I was 14 years old. Um, first at the sort of evening courses and then uh, by myself with a private teacher. And after that, I decided to become a translator and interpreter of Japanese, Russian and English. Um, but after my years at the university, um, when I was um, an undergraduate uh, in Siberia, I understood that that Japanese literature was um, extremely very interesting, uh, including poetry. And I was, became very interested in um, classical Japanese poetry. And so uh, all the roads um, lead to Saigyo, uh, the Buddhist priest and a poet um, of um, early, early medieval Japan. And um, that's, that's how I started. I started with uh, studying the poetry of Saigyo. Um, in Japan at the Kanazawa University, where I was doing my master's degree in Japanese classical literature. And, of course, you can't really study and understand Saigyo's poetry without understanding of religion. So I think, um, long story short, um, uh, in the figure of Saigyo, um, there were all these big three topics, religion, Buddhism, and Japan, that came together. And um, that's how I started. How did you come then to focus specifically on the topic of this book, uh, namely the sacred site of Mount Miwa, though you focus on quite a few other sites as well, um, and on uh, so on the sacred site of Miwa and on medieval approaches to worshipping uh, these deities we called kami? Um, when I was thinking of the possible topic for my uh, PhD dissertation at Cambridge in um, back in 2002, um, one of the senior colleagues in the field, uh, Mark Tewen, suggested that I look at Mount Miwa because it was extremely interesting. When I actually wanted to uh, learn more about esoteric Buddhism in medieval Japan, again, being inspired by the figure of Saigyo, who talks about contemplation on the moon, who uses a lot of um, allusions to the Tendai and Shingon teachings in his poetry. And um, so this is, this is how I came across Mount Miwa. Uh, with a good advice uh, from a senior colleague, but also um, because uh, Mount Miwa, of course, figured very prominently in the early history of Japan. So it was a very famous um, site that uh, loomed very large in Japanese pre-modern history. So the fact that Shinto is not um, some pre-Buddhist nature religion is going to be obvious for listeners who study Japan, but um, nevertheless, I want to before we get into the content of the actual book, I would like to ask you to disabuse us of this idea that Shinto is the native Japanese religion, um, as opposed to Buddhism, which is uh, the foreign Buddhism. Uh, but more importantly, to explain where this book fits in the very active endeavor of scholars to better understand the history of Japanese religion. Um, well, the book focuses on uh, Mount Miwa, but um, in fact, it's uh, probably just one example in uh, in a long, already a long, uh, long uh, line of the books that focus on sacred sites in pre-modern Japan, especially medieval Japan. Um, so from that uh, viewpoint, um, the methodology that was started by Alain Grappar with his, um, with his monograph um, on the Kofu, Ko, Buddhist temple Kofukuji and uh, the Kasuga Shrine was a very early example and, and the kind of inspiration for this book as well. Um, but 
the main uh, the main approach um, to this kind of study uh, of sacred sites in Japanese history is perhaps to to have a, a glance uh, in the long durée of how the local uh, cults and the local worships, the local kinds of religiosity change with the arrival of new ideas. And in that sense, um, of course, we cannot, uh, when looking at the history of um, Mount Miwa in early Japan, in the uh, sort of the times when the earliest Japanese uh, records were um, were written down in the 8th century, we cannot really talk about Shinto as such. That, that um, along uh, many, many things have been said, um, about what we can and cannot understand under this uh, fairly modern term, Shinto. So I prefer to use the, the term kami worship. And in that sense, uh, Mount Miwa is a, is, a, is a center for veneration of kami for a very, very long time. Um, we see in the 8th century Japanese records that uh, Mount Miwa is a kind of a um, it's it's a it's an abode for uh, the deities that are local, but also the deities of continental origins that come together with the successive um, waves of immigration from the Korean Peninsula and so on. Um, and this, at, at the same time, we also see the approaches of uh, early approaches of the Buddhist um, actors, of the Buddhist monks, um, who also come to to Miwa to to do something to proselytize the newly arriving um, doctrines of Buddhism. Uh, to practice medicine um, and so on. So in a way, uh, the site acts as a kind of an anchor uh, which, uh, which helps us to, to look at all the successive waves of uh, appropriation of new ideas, including the Buddhist ideas. As we've already mentioned, the book focuses in part on the site of Mount Miwa, which is located along the southeastern rim of the uh, Yamato Basin in central Japan. So this is about uh, 55 kilometers south of Kyoto. Now, and I should mention for listeners, you have some very useful maps in the beginning of the book that make it very easy to sort of understand uh, the location of Mount Miwa in relation to other uh, sacred sites in the area. Now, in the first chapter, you provide a very detailed early history of Mount Miwa, as well as its uh, deities, shrines, and temples. This chapter is going to be required reading for anyone wanting to understand the origins of the sacred site, and it's very fascinating. Now, there's far, far too much detail uh, to cover in the interview, but I was wondering if you could just give us a brief idea of why and in what way Mount Miwa was an important religious site early on. Um, Mount Miwa was probably one of the earliest sites um, and sacred mountains to be associated with the early rulers of Japan, the early Yamato rulers. Um, if we can rely on the uh, notoriously difficult to read early records of Nihon Shoki that were commissioned by the uh, imperial, uh, imperial house in the 8th century, um, we can notice right away that Mount Miwa was an important, um, uh, important place for these early rulers. Um, right there, uh, they venerated the deities uh, enshrined on the mountains. Some, some of which, uh, some of these deities were considered to be local, and some uh, were um, some were transported or arrived 
from the coastal areas of Japan, uh, namely the area called Izumo that was facing Korea. So um, on the one hand, we even in this early period, we, all, we can already discern um, quite a complicated transcultural uh, element um, in the history of Mount Miwa's deities and the sacred site itself. In principle, there wasn't actually really that much on the mountain. Perhaps um, the three uh, rocks called Iwakura that were positioned on a different um, places on the slope of the mountain. Perhaps this was the earliest um, sites of the veneration of, of this um, threatening and um, very dangerous, but also at times benevolent and protective deities that um, to which uh, early Japan rulers felt uh, an affinity to. So um, in that sense, um, between this, and of course there is also an archaeological material that suggests that Mount Miwa had several ritual sites that were associated with uh, transregional uh, trade, perhaps, transregional exchange, and of course it was located very close um, to uh, the various mounds of the early Japanese rulers. So there is a lot of archaeological materials that suggest that this was a very special place. So, 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 so the picture you uh, uh, you paint is of this uh, side of Mount Miwa that's very important, particularly for rulers early on. And, but then in the second chapter, you note that, um, well, you mentioned this in the first chapter too, but you note that during the Heian period, being the late 8th to the late 12th century, um, Miwa's significance for the political elite declined. And with this, references to Mount Miwa and its deity and official records largely disappear. In the second chapter, you introduce us to some developments during the Heian period that set the stage for Miwa's later history. And more specifically, you note that the Nara Temple Kofukuji became increasingly economically and politically dominant in the area, and that much of Miwa's lands and tax revenue were essentially taken uh, by Kofukuji. But at the same time, Miwa becomes part of this uh, becomes part of these important pilgrimage routes that link Kyoto to Nara, and then Nara, to a number of flourishing Buddhist sites uh, to the south of Miwa and to the east of Miwa. So how do these pilgrimage routes develop, and how are they important for Miwa's later history? I think um, this chapter is precisely where um, this hidden and forgotten history of Mount Miwa and its people, its uh, practitioners, really begins. Because um, on the one hand, um, the um, any written texts that um, are pro were produced at Miwa itself, they kind of disappear. During the Heian period, we see the reflections of the sacred sites and its practitioners through um, some other so through some other glasses. Mainly, you mentioned Kofukuji, and this is a very this becomes a very very big presence in uh, in the Yamato region in in central Japan. Um, so Mount Miwa disappears a little bit, but this is where I think the actual story of um, medieval kami worship in this region um, begins. Um, because uh, it is precisely through this network of uh, pilgrimage routes that connect the nearby sacred mountains, um, which um, house the quarters or uh, the small mountain temples where mountain ascetics could congregate and practice the seasonal rites. Um, so we gradually see, um, once we divert our gaze from the big temples, we begin to see that there, there 
uh, there seems to be quite a lot of movement, particularly towards the end of the 12th century, um, around these nearby mountains. And Mount Miwa is included in these pilgrimage routes that extend from the northern part of the Yamato, um, Yamato Plain to the south, to the east, to the west. Um, but it, the mountain itself is actually um, not participating very actively. It is not, um, it does not attract that many people. Um, they're all on their way somewhere else. They're going to Tonomine, they're going to Kimpusen, to Kumano, and um, other very renowned um, sacred sites. In chapter three, you turn to a training hall that appeared at Miwa around the late 12th century and eventually took on the temple named Byodoji. Now, by 1235, this training uh, temple, this training hall, had developed into a small temple complex consisting of a few buildings and a library, and a number of monks from the area came there to stay or to use materials in the library. What, what was the relationship with the wider Buddhist network uh, at this point in its history? Um, Miwa's relationship with the wider Buddhist network at this point in history uh, during the first third or first half of the 13th century? Um, that's that's a very interesting and complicated question because um, this particular chapter then begins to build on on uh, chapter two, in which I discuss this uh, network of, of pilgrimage routes nearby in the Yamato region. But um, in this chapter, um, my main interest was to cast light on the um, activities and aspirations of the local non-elite Buddhist practitioners who were um, stationed near Mount Miwa and Beodoji was definitely one of the places um, that housed such practitioners. Uh, some of them were able to travel and um, be accepted at the more uh, established, very renowned centers of esoteric Buddhist scholarship, such as, for example, Daigoji or uh, Koyasan, um, quite quite uh, some some distance away and uh, these practitioners despite their um, a lack of uh, extremely high social status they were able nevertheless to learn uh, very directly the complicated uh, doctrines and uh, rituals of esoteric buddhism from renowned masters who uh, were stationed at this uh, particular esoteric buddhist temples namely daigoji and koasan so that's just one example of uh, what kind of activities they were involved in and secondly, of course, Mount Miwa being on the uh, on the crossroads of these intersecting mountain pilgrimage routes. Um, of course, the practitioners at Mount, uh, from Mount Miwa were able to travel to other smaller um, mountain temples and sites. And in this way, they traverse this terrain of the Yamato region very, very actively. Um, so one can imagine that they were personally involved in a number of different kinds of practices that were that existed uh, at, at different uh, places uh, around the Yamato region. So moving on in uh, rather rapid fashion, um, in chapter four, you turn to the development of a relationship between the temple Saidaiji and Mount Miwa. Now, Saidaiji is a large and historically important temple in Nara that had declined after being uh, partly destroyed by fires in the 9th and 10th centuries, but which had been revived in the 13th century by the monk Aizon, or Aizon who was a Shingon or esoteric Buddhist monk and is well known for his interest 
in and study of the Vinaya, the Buddhist monastic precepts. So here in this chapter, you describe in great deal both the chronology and nature of the relationship between Saidaiji and Miwa. And I'd like to ask why Aesun was interested in Miwa in the first place, because as you know, by this point, it had shifted from its uh, early and you know, very early importance for Japanese rulers to something of a localized site that didn't have much importance beyond its uh, immediate environment. So why was Aizon interested in Miwa in the first place? Uh, why did he make his first trip there in 1241? And why did he continue to make trips to the mountain throughout the throughout his life during the 13th century? I think um, it was always uh, going to be quite a tall order to uh, to explain uh, what or what Aizon thought of Miva or what he didn't think of Miva. For me, it's, in a way, it remains a, a kind of a mystery because Aizon, of course, is a very looming, also very large in the history of uh, medieval Japanese Buddhism, and many fine scholars already produced a lot of uh, interesting uh, research uh, involving this figure, focusing on this figure, but. Um, for me, part of this mystery can perhaps be solved by considering the fact that um, Aizon was born in the Yamato region. He was born in the uh, village of Vani, which was um, uh, actually located not too far from within the, the respective region of the Yamato plain. So it is possible that um, he was informed, he was he knew uh, the stories and the legendary lore about the deities of Mount Miwa and so on. So um, in that sense, it's not really surprising that, uh, that he eventually started to visit Mount Miwa. But what I found surprising in the, in the course of my research um, was to what extent this Aizon and Saidaiji lineage then incorporated Mount Miwa and its religious facilities. By then, uh, there was a, um, also a shrine lineage, uh, the priestly lineage of shrine priests who was um, also living and looking after the sacred sites um, on Mount Miwa. So to what extent um, uh, the Saidaiji lineage incorporated Mount Miwa into its own network? That's what I found really surprising and, and interesting um, to, to focus on. And um, just in the, um, we spoke um, in the second chapter, we spoke about the approaches of Kofukuji, the sort of economic and uh, administrative approaches, um, encroachments of Kofukuji on Mount Miwa and its land estates. Um, Saidaji was Saidaji's approach was not like that, but at the same time, um, it seems that the Saidaji lineage was very interested in uh, uh, reviving this uh, old, forgotten uh, sacred site. That was that, that didn't formally belong to any uh, powerful patrons. So I think for Saidaji there was a lot of um, uh, enthusiasm for the places like Mount Miwa and many others. We know that they restored quite a few old shrines and and temples in the course of their careers. And Aizon, of course, um, uh, played a very crucial role in this particular process. But what happened also is that because the Saidaji lineage has recorded one of the key medieval texts about Mount Miwa, Miwa Daimyojin Engi, um, they kind of wrote out um, the historical contributions and intellectual contributions 
of other practitioners who uh, were stationed at Biodoje and Miwa Besho. So in a sense, um, this chapter is a kind of a struggle to, again, to rescue these invisible non-elite practitioners um, that uh, historically uh, made Mount Miwa their home uh, from the more uh, um, uh, literate, more um, socially uh, tuned in monks of the Saidaija lineage. In chapter five, and there's a lot more in chapter four we didn't talk about, but I want to move on to chapter five, in which you focus quite a bit on the site of Ise, which um, many listeners will know is important for um, the worship of Amaterasu, the sort of sun deity, um, imperial deity. And indeed, Ise is of great importance to your study. So why the centrality of Ise in your study? Um, uh, what does it? What's the importance of the relationship between Ise and Miwa? And what does looking at Ise tell us about the way in which Buddhists thought about and worshipped Kami in the 13th and 14th centuries? One of the key texts which I mentioned um, that was produced in the early 14th century by the Saidaija lineage, or rather recorded with the help of the Saidaija lineage, is Miwa Daimyojin Engi. And this text gives us a very new um, sort of revolutionary outlook on this ancient cultic site, Mount Miwa. And the text does so uh, precisely by highlighting the connections um, to uh, the Issa shrines, which uh, were the central was it, were the central sacred sites for the worship of, of Amaterasu, the imperial deity, just as you said. And so uh, we discover that in medieval Japan. Um, Mount Miwa, uh, having returned to the scene of, uh, really, it's having recovered its religious identity, or rather having created a new religious identity with the, um, appropriation of many esoteric Buddhist elements, uh, Mount Miwa, um, emerges in the 14th century as a kind of a counterpoint to the Isa shrines, which, uh, technically, do not allow the Buddhist language, do not allow the Buddhist uh, monks or uh, the Buddhist uh, elements to exist on the premises of the um, of the Issa shrines. On the one hand, of course, there is a uh, lot has been said about the ambiguity of the taboo on Buddhist anything at Issa. But uh, through this text, Miwa Daimyojing Engi, Mount Miwa begins to promote itself as a sacred site that is, first of all, is older than the Issa shrines. There is a very ancient history of Mount Miwa, which we talked about at the very beginning. And uh, the Saidaiji monks uh, frame, um, uh, they record the legendary lore about Mount Miwa in such a way that helps to construct this uh, sacred site as um, um, a site of enshrinement of a very powerful deity that is much older than Amaterasu. And at the same time, that uh, provides the links to the imperial deity um, and many other sacred sites, including the Tendai temples and so on. So through this text, we see uh, Mount Miwa created um, as, a, as a new powerful um, powerful sacred site that wants to stand on its own and yet uh, to exhibit its own connections, historical links to other uh, important uh, sacred sites such as Ise. So, so essentially, what we have, um, and this is a gross oversimplification, though, is a sort of a process by which Mount Miwa is originally this very important site for Yamato rulers, for J Japan's early rulers, and then it sort of declines um, 
to the point where it becomes really just a localized um, religious site, if you will. And then with the involvement of the Saidaiji, uh, of the Saidaiji monks, it gets pulled into this larger network and and becomes this very important uh, center for Buddhist worship and Kami worship. So in chapters, moving on into chapter six, you here you begin to, by discussing the way in which, at least in Shingon, the kami or deities were, and here I quote you, indispensable to the practice of esoteric Buddhism. They could act as crucial mediators, activating the prized state of enlightenment. And here you also address the way in which kami, particularly when portrayed as snakes or serpents, were seen as both a symbol of greed, aversion, and ignorance, the Buddhism's so-called three poisons, and as those or those figures who could overcome these poisons. So how did kami function soteriologically in the type of Buddhism we see at Miwa during this period? And, and um, how do they have this sort of ambiguous du- dual role? What you just um, have described, uh, namely the theories um, about uh, the three poisons um, and the kami that uh, could be perceived as snakes or serpents, um, this kind of arguments uh, were, it seems that these kind of arguments were already quite widely known um, across Japan. And the discussions of the three poisons uh, and serpent deities, of course, we, we can see very widely in pre-modern East Asian materials, uh, in Chinese Buddhist uh, um, writings uh, and so on. So it's not only Japan that knows um, about um, these kind of things. But what happens at Miwa and why uh, Miwa suddenly emerges as a powerful site of the Kami worship in medieval Japan is that um, one of the uh, most well-known legends about uh, Mount Miwa and its deity um, was already recorded in the 8th century and the Saidaiji lineage certainly incorporated and uh, uh, reinforced this legend within the uh, early 14th century Miwa Daimyojin Engi. Um, and um, to the Buddhist eye, to the, to the eyes of medieval Buddhists uh, in Japan, Mount Miwa was, of course, a site of uh, enshrinement of the most important, most, uh, most powerful uh, serpent deity, or Mononushi. So it was very famous for this particular legend that Mount Miwa was a house or or an abode of a serpent deity, Um, also the plague deity too. Um, So it was on the one hand very fearsome, but um, at the same time it was well incorporated. It was a place uh, which propagated Buddhism since uh, ancient times, according to its own tradition, right? Um, So in that sense, uh, the local practitioners and certainly the Saidaji lineage were interested in Mount Miwa and its deity as a kind of... um, a sort of a channel that could connect the local context, the local sacred landscape to the distant divinities of, um, of esoteric Buddhism, for example. And so, um, during this time, Mount Miwa becomes a site which is also, uh, sort of swept um, uh, through which these th- esoteric theories about kami being the serpents and being the channels to the uh, esoteric deities, being manifestations of esoteric deities, it kind of sweeps Mount Miwa too. And we see reflection of this process in uh, the Miwa Daimyojin Engi. But with time, um, it seems that uh, the ritual aspect of these ideas, the, the fact that the kami could be ritually incorporated into the new salvatory techniques of achieving esoteric Buddhist enlightenment. Um, that particular um, event uh, also happens at Miwa during the um, 
late 13th century. So by the 14th century, Miwa, uh, again, by the means of the Saidaiji lineage that connects it so well to the uh, network, esoteric uh, network at Ise, um, Mount Miwa is also included uh, into, the, um, into the practices um, uh, in which kami are, uh, are invoked as a part of esoteric ritual. So one of the things you do in this chapter, and well, and indeed elsewhere in the book, is you give us these really fantastic uh, descriptions of rituals. And again, these are far too detailed to cover in the course of the interview. But I was wondering if you could just uh, pick a ritual from medieval Mount Miwa that, or from the Miwa tradition that you feel is representative and give us an idea of what sort of ritual it is. In many ways, Mount Miwa has become famous yet again in the 17th century when um, we we come across uh, a lot of copied documents, ritual documents that uh, mention um, a ritual called Miwaru Jingi Kanjo, the Abiseka initiation into the Kami secret in the Miwa style. Um, and in my quest to to uh, debunk what it means, um, I realized that uh, again it's this those non no, non elite uh, invisible um, practitioners of esoteric Buddhism that were so prominent that, that inhabited uh, Mount Miwa and Byodoji Temple in the 13th and 14th century that played a great role uh, together with the Saidaiji lineage uh, that was far more visible that is far more visible in the historical sources. Um, and these groups uh, played a, a great role in constructing uh, the ritual traditions of Mount Miwa during that time. And so uh, one of the most prominent features of these uh, very uh, rich activities, ritual activities, um, was the Jingi Kanjo, the Abhisheka in the, um, the initiation um, into the Kami secrets, uh, which involved um, venerating the local deities as a, a part of esoteric ritual. So uh, one of the very prominent and interesting things in which, um, in which um, the practitioners from Miwa played role uh, was the construction and uh, spread of uh, a certain simplified uh, ritual, which was called Denbo Aizen, that was focusing on um, a serpent imagery that on the one hand could be interpreted as a manifestation of esoteric deity Aizen Myo, but uh, on the other hand, that could represent at the same time um, either Amaterasu, the imperial deity in its serpent form, uh, that could on the one hand was a manifestation of the three poisons, but on the other hand, had a power to pacify and uh, these three poisons and convert them into the sort of this divine energy that could lead um, a practitioner to esoteric enlightenment. So um, Denbo Aizen was a ritual that involved a simplified uh, imagery of uh, serpentine deities, of uh, serpentine kami, but at the same time it connected um, the practitioners to the very complex uh, divine uh, divine states um, that were explained by the doctrines and scriptures of esoteric uh, Buddhism, um, such as, for example, the Yugikyo, the Yugikyo Sutra, um, the Yogin Sutra. So in that sense, um, during the medieval period, Mount Miwa was at the very thick of it, uh, practicing these uh, rituals that looked fairly simple on the surface, but contained a lot of things to unpack to the initiated practitioner. 
Um, and uh, from this viewpoint, Mount Miro continued to produce um, these and similar esoteric rituals that involved kami, um, and up to a point when it uh, really became uh, famous as a bearer of uh, this uh, Miwaryu Shinto, a phenomenon that uh, emerged during the early modern period, um, which imagined uh, the Miwa practitioners as the bearers of some kind of special Shinto, some kind of special form of kami worship. Now, in Chapter 7, you move forward in time and look at Miwaryu Shinto as it developed from the mid-medieval period through the Edo period, so um, so from about the 13th to the early 19th century. Now, there are many developments that you address, but I wanted to first, or I just wanted to ask you about the importance of the imperial regalia that we find in many Miwaryu ritual manuals. What are the imperial regalia and what's their importance for the Miwa tradition? The imagery of the three imperial regalia is encountered not only in the Miwaru um, ritual documents. Of course, uh, there are other traditions who also, which also uh, incorporate this imagery and uh, these particular um, um, three objects, um, the, uh, the mirror, the sword and the jewel. Um, what is interesting in the Miwa's case, uh, in the case of uh, 17th century uh, Miwaru ritual documents, is that um, these documents paint a special picture. Um, they suggest that um, the, these non-elite practitioners of esoteric Buddhism who would be initiated in the Miwaru tradition um, would use uh, these ritual props or this, this ritual imagery to um, acquire a way to become uh, a symbolic emperor, a symbolic ruler uh, of Japan, to, um, if you like, to step into the shoes of an early Yamato ruler who uh, submits uh, to uh, who submits to Amaterasu or uh, to become even Amaterasu, the imperial deity itself. So, in this sense, uh, the imagery of the imperial regalia is, on the one hand, it's a kind of a standard uh, ritual element, but on the other hand, uh, it's a very powerful tool for uh, a practitioner of uh, esoteric forms of kami worship to become uh, to to reach a higher state of existence, to become a, a symbolic ruler, to become a Buddha, to become a divini- divinity and the kami themselves. We've taken a lot of your time, and I should emphasize to listeners that we've really only covered a little bit. It's a really fascinating topic, incredibly complex. Uh, I mean, I seriously admire you for taking on such a complicated period and such a complicated topic. Uh, as the as a final question, I wanted to ask what you're working on currently now that this project is finished. When I was working on um, this, my, my PhD dissertation, focusing first at, uh, on Mount Miwa and uh, then consequently expanding into this realm, into the minds, uh, hopes and aspirations of uh, the Buddhist, local Buddhist practitioners stationed there, um, I realized that I spent so much time looking into the minds of men. Right now, I'm, I'm very eager to look into the minds and the worlds uh, of women. At the moment, I'm very much interested in, in a slightly different topic, um, which still focuses on uh, esoteric Buddhist contributions to uh, the intellectual history of um, Japan, but uh, from a viewpoint of um, a very interesting topic, um, childbirth and women's health. 
Um, very recently, I have, uh, well, at the moment, I'm working on a transcription of a um, two-volume text, um, a manuscript that I uh, was rediscovered recently at the Kanazawa Bunko Temple Archive in Yokohama in eastern Japan. Um, that is called the Encyclopedia of Childbirth, um, Sancho Ruijusho in Japanese. Um, and it's a very interesting compilation that casts light not only on the um, history of medicine as it was understood in medieval Japan, but also um, I very much hope that it will give us a new information on how the lives of women, everyday lives of women were framed by the Buddhist knowledge of uh, the workings, in internal workings of the uh, women's bodies. So um, at the moment, I'm very much trying to um, untangle yet another complex network of texts, um, actors, Buddhist minds, women's lives, um, and uh, and other people in medieval Japan. Wow, that sounds great. And we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to uh, your next book then um, in a few months' time, hopefully, but maybe longer. I'd like to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. That's it for today's new books in Buddhist studies. And thank you for all the listeners. See you next time.